5: Hello and welcome to Mid Atlantic. I'm Royful Brown, who is in a you know, it's most definitely the start of autumn. It is nippy, it is chilly, it is a little bit parky, as we say in England in Birmingham. But before I start the show, I have to say this we have done another recording earlier today, but maybe this episode of Mid Atlantic will come out before the early recording today. And I have to change the intro theme. Dare I say it, we're on our second Prime Minister since Theresa May in the United Kingdom. And America is on its uh, next president, on Donald Trump. So that's the last time you'll actually hear that intro theme. And today's topic is how hopeful should the Democrats be about the midterms? Midterms traditionally are where the the American public give a kick in to a party that holds at least the presidency, if not other levers of power. But why are the Democrats so bullish about the hopes in November if? The economy is still reeling from high inflation and there is uncertainty as to whether the country will actually trip into a recession. To help us answer these questions, we have friend of the podcast, Aaron Fisher, who's a democratic uh, strategist and, and operative, as ditto is also Eric Foster.
6: Just over two months until November's midterm elections, a new survey shows a major momentum shift for Democrats. Just crossing this morning, the latest Wall Street Journal poll shows 47% of registered voters say if the election were held today, they would vote for the Democratic candidate. That's compared to 44% who would vote Republican, a big swing from March when Republicans held a five-point lead over Democrats. A big part of that shift comes from a change among independent voters who now favor Democratic candidates by by 3% back in March. That lead was 12% for Republicans, a 15% swing since just March. And when asked about a potential rematch between Donald Trump and Joe Biden in 2024, voters say they prefer the current president, 50% to 44% in March the two were tied, Joe. Also in this poll, Joe Biden's approval number is up to 45%. This is a new Wall Street Journal poll that just crossed this morning.
5: Aaron Fisher, I'll come to you first because I know your time is short with us today. Quite simply, why have things turned around at least since the spring for the Democrats?
7: So let me go from sort of backwards forward. So the first thing is the Democrats have had a string of victories legislatively. So they've had the Inflation Reduction Act and a couple other important pieces of legislation that have given them a sense of momentum, which has helped address certain issues, including climate. There's a student loan debt decision by Joe Biden where he canceled $10,000 of student debt and up to $20,000 for certain borrowers. So there's a series of of policy wins. The next thing is, is that Donald Trump continues to find ways to be in the news for all the wrong reasons. So Particularly, his handling of classified materials at Mar-a-Lago, which has just been kind of an albatross an anchor for Republicans, particularly amongst independents, who might otherwise be inclined to vote for Republicans, particularly given kind of the historical context of the first-term presidents having a really hard time with midterm elections in their first term, and and then finally, and this is really, I think, the most important one, is the rollback of reproductive freedom in the U.S. with the Supreme Court's Hobbes decision, which basically said the states can determine whether or not abortion is legal in that state and under what circumstances. And so there were, I believe it was 13 states that had trigger laws, so-called trigger laws, that immediately upon the reversal of what had been the law, Roe v. Wade, had abortion bans, usually near total abortion bans, that went into place. And then a number of other states that have very old laws, like 100-year-old laws, that now are the law of the land. And, and essentially what that means is, is that a right has been taken away from women. So their ability to decide what happens with their own body is no more. And it's pissed off a lot of women. The first vote that happened following Hobbes that concerned this was the referendum in Kansas to ban, it was a near total ban on abortion. And even in very, very Republican Kansas. The vote was 59-41 in favor of main, or in favor, or I should say, in opposition to that particular law. Next, we saw a very, very competitive congressional race in the special election go to the Democrats. And the other thing that we've been seeing across the country is massive, massive voter registration amongst young people, particularly women of reproductive age, and that threatens to reshape the electorate in the U.S. Good turnout for a midterm election is usually about 50 percent. And if young people are as energized in support of reproductive freedom as it seems that they are, they could be closer to 15% and they're breaking very, very strongly pro-choice as we say in the States. So it's about 78% of young people who favor abortion being available. And it's not even 22% who are against it. There's a lot of people who just say, I don't know in that poll. And so they really could reshape things in a big way and that's to say nothing of all the other people in the country were highly motivated on this issue, and particularly as we hear stories of women holding, you know, carrying, you know, failing pregnancies where there's no way that the fetus is going to develop into a child, being forced to carry that failing pregnancy for, you know, multiple weeks at risk to their fertility, even potentially their life. You know, people are reacting to that. There was a really horrific story in Ohio of a ten-year-old who was who was raped and impregnated who had to cross state lines to receive abortion care, even though it's kind of, you know, easily one of the most horrific situations one could imagine. So these stories are consistently pushing Americans towards the Democrats who are very much the pro-choice party. I believe all but one representative in the House and the Senate are pro-choice for the Democrats and against the Republican Party, where I believe every single candidate is pro-life except for, I believe, Susan Collins, the senator from Maine.
5: That does definitely chime with the Marquette's law school poll of Wisconsin voters, of which just 5% of registered voters in Wisconsin believe that abortion should be illegal in all cases, and yet that is the position of the Republican candidate for governor. Have the Democrats, and I'm still staying with you, Aram, managed basically to subtly position the Republicans as the extremist party?
7: Oh, I think... The Republicans have positioned themselves as that. I don't think that there's really any need for the Democrats to do much, but to make sure that everyone knows. Republicans have been very, very stridently against abortion for decades now. It's an article of faith in the Democratic, I'm sorry, in the Republican Party, and that you be pro-life. And the basic coalition around this issue has been that the economic conservatives align with the social social conservatives, and that's how Republicans win. Well, now you've got economic conservatives who really, you know, aren't really that bothered about this issue, who would like to abandon it in favor of electoral success and social conservatives who essentially are saying, we need you to double down. We want these bans to be even more restrictive than they currently are. And it's going to be very interesting to see if Republicans can hold their coalition together in that context.
5: Could you explain to us the Lindsey Graham bill, which is, is not going to pass, but how does that maybe play into these two Republican sensibilities? On one hand, maybe they need to maybe roll back their stridency on the position of being absolutist about banning abortion and and how maybe that points to this point at which the Republican Party, at least some of its candidates are trying to go through where they're trying to row back from being strident pro-lifers.
7: Absolutely. So the Lindsey Graham bill would essentially ban abortion in virtually all cases after 15 weeks and the political strategy is to say well that's actually a longer period of time than what europe allows or at least most european countries allow but the reality is, is in europe there's very broad exceptions beyond the 15-week period or it's usually between like 11 and 14 weeks for european countries including even socioeconomic grounds let alone the health of the mother or situations of rape and incest and so the ploy is to basically try to make Democrats look like they're the extreme ones in abortion because they're even more permissive than those lefty Europeans are. The reality is, is it bans, it's a near total ban on abortion after 15 weeks. And part of what's going on here is that when those races happened, that referendum in Kansas, the race in New York, when those happened, there were a lot of Republicans who were removing their policy plank on abortion from their websites because they realized it was a very... It was a political liability. And as that was pulling back, there were a lot of very influential social conservatives, including in Lindsey Graham's home state of South Carolina, who were saying, no way, Like this is something we believe in deeply. Don't you back away from what's arguably their, you know, their core tenet politically, the thing that they care most about. And so this is a way of kind of hardening the GOP position on abortion, which I think will ultimately backfire because it's still ultimately a pro life position. It's highly restrictive relative to, you know, comparable OECD countries. And I don't think that women looking at this situation are gonna be sort of confused by this. I think not and not just women, I mean people who are generally pro choice. I don't think they're gonna be confused by this legislation, which also has no chance of passing right now, but is a statement of what Republicans would do if they were to win control of the legislature in, in November upon their being seated in January.
5: Eric Foster, I'm going to bring you into the conversation now. When Joe Biden entered the race of president in 2019, he declared that the soul of the nation was at stake. Is this election fundamentally just an extension of that? And when he says the soul of the nation at stake, very obviously he's talking about democracy, but also he's pointing a big finger at Donald Trump. How much of this election is fundamentally a continuation of the election just two years ago?
2: Thank you, Roy Field. And it is a direct continuation because ultimately there's a few factors that are taking place. So first off, you have a movement in the right of America that David Corn's new book is coming out and talks about the extremism that the Republican Party has embraced going back to McCarthyism and the different iterations of it bubbling up to where we are today. The soul of the nation and the issues with that side is they want to, plan to, and are purposeful at wanting to install a American version of a theocratic dictatorship in which they control, they dominate the decisions of your spiritual life, your personal life, your business life under the guise of leading the country in the right way or getting people back to quote unquote Christian ideals or the like. But ultimately, it's not an America in which the continuing evolution of our people, the racial diversity, technology diversity, gender and sexuality diversity, all of the things that just continue to evolve as a people, which have been part of who we've been for centuries, but have not had a place where there's been an opportunity to allow for an equalization of rights and liberties to be explored and to be safely approached and engaged. That side has no interest in any of that. And they tell us that every day. They're very clear in the not only the demonization of language that they use to attack both the 81,268,924 Biden voters, the 25 states in D.C., the counties and cities that vote traditionally Democratic, but also the 2,905,479 third-party voters who voted for other candidates for POTUS. We're not part of their construct and they communicate this on their media ecosystem, on their, in floor speeches in Congress, in state houses, on social media, it's consistent. And so to that point, yes, President Biden is saying that this is a continuation of the battle for the soul of America, but what is newly found in looking at the way he's approached this and there is a parallel to FDR and what was going on in 1933 and the 1934 midterm. President Biden has finally realized that that part of America at this particular point has no interest in being united. They're not trying to see him other officials that they don't agree with or citizens that they don't agree with as people to unite with. And so he's drawing the clear contrast that has to be drawn and the party and non Trump leaning authoritative leading media is picking up on it so that it's clear to communicate to the voters, to citizens that there is a stark choice. Fortunately to what he's got to do, you have the megaphone of not only Trump, but DeSantis, Abbott, McCarthy, Tucker Carlson, and others who give you the dystopian, myopic, dictatorship view of if they're in control, what they're going to do and why they feel they have to do this because we as the others are, Someone that they want out of the country. I'm on the plane at this Eric, point. I,
5: Eric, yes. I, I, I'm, I'm with you completely. However, behoves me as, as host to, to at least try and argue this sometimes fr- from the other side to try and understand this. President Biden gave a speech a couple of weeks ago where many Republicans say was incredibly divisive, though it was kind of wrapped up, and it was wrapped up with, they would say, this dystopian view that you know democracy was at stake. Couldn't couldn't they point the finger back at the president and say that was not a unifying speech? You called us all MAGA Republicans and we were and we were othered.
2: So first off, I would say that they like my second ex-wife, who I used to always have this debate with when she would talk down to me and then she would say that I'm not hearing her words correctly. I guess they've never heard the words that come out of their mouth over the past 20 years when they talk of Democrats and democratic communities, every speech that Donald Trump makes that Ron DeSantis makes and that others make is a full on demonization and division speech to prop up their side and to cast our side as satanic, evil, demonic, criminal, blood soaked streets, crime ridden all these terms they use about us and all you have to do is listen and then read the transcripts of their speeches, not only in public sphere, but also in Congress and in state houses when they do the journals of floor speeches and the like. So for President Biden to call that out, they're in their feelings because it's the first time that somebody from our side has actually said, "Nope, we're not going to let you continue to define us in these dystopian Mad Max escape from New York, Kurt Russell type of themes, we're going to call it out. It's not true, but ultimately you're doing this because you have no recourse for democracy and for the give and take of policy winning and losing elections and the equalization of the country. So while they are in their feelings, I'm glad that he finally pushed there. He doesn't have to, and no more should our side, feel that we have to cower in fear of, and he wasn't talking about the 74,216,154 that voted for Trump. But when you posit to them all of the things that they say about democratic cities, Democrats, and other communities that they don't like, they say, well, we're not talking about you as voters. We're talking about the people you elect. But ultimately, there is no segregation. So now they can get, hear a little bit of how we've been feeling for the past 20-plus years, and they need to suck it up, buttercup, because but, it's but Eric Eric,
5: I thought that when they... Go low, we, we, we go high. But but hold,
2: hold Yeah, not on. everybody's got to do that, you know. Michelle <laughs> Obama, thank you, Jesus, that she does that. I'm not rolling on that on that card anymore. <laughs> could I jump uh, in right.
7: every second on this one, Rick?
2: Go on, go on now.
7: Just, so, yeah, so, so quickly, I think that there's a distinction that Biden was trying to make, which, you know, I think people can honestly disagree with how well he made the distinction or not. And Republicans clearly think that he did, for the most part, at least. But there's a a set of candidates across the country, very, very notable candidates, people running for governor, people running for senator, people running for House of Representatives and down the line to the down ballot races who basically said that the 2020 election was rigged. It was a stolen election and they continue to hold on to that and they're taking actions which would actually rig the next elections. And so there's a real quandary there. Because do you call that out, which basically breaks the social contract, or do you stay mum on it and then potentially these people win and they actually do the anti-democratic actions that they're planning? We actually just saw another Republican election official be indicted in upstate New York just yesterday for literally cheating through a ballot fraud. And the kind of thing where we, you know, we've seen a fair amount of this now where Republican, either voters, operatives, or election officials, who are calling, you know, claiming that the Democrats are stealing elections, actually actively stealing elections themselves. And if someone like, say, Doug Mastriano were to win the governorship in Pennsylvania, he's essentially promised that he'll continue that kind of behavior. And so, when you have something that's a threat to the very functioning of democracy within the country, you know, calling it out seems like the right thing to do
2: to me. And fully, I concur to Aram's point, because you also have to let the voters who are on the side of the civil liberties and human rights that are being attacked by that side, you have to let them know what's at stake. And you have to stand up and say, I'm standing up for you all as well. I'm not going to let them continue to say we're these bad, horrible people. We love this country. We care. We're trying if they want to. And now to appoint the airmaid, you do see in a lot of the states, there are Republicans that are running that are actually pro-democracy Republicans. And we get a proof of concept of how many of their voters are still voting for democracy candidates. The Ohio Senate race is a good example. Matt Dolan, who ran, ran as a non-Trump, pro-democracy Republican. Now, he didn't win, but he got 23.7 percent of the vote. So we know in a state like that, you got 23.7 percent of the Republican voters who are reachable, who still believe in a multicultural, multi democracy. We can work with them.
5: Which does actually chime with the Quinnipiac University poll, which was released last month, which found that 67% of American adults believe that US democracy is in danger of collapsing. That does not break down very obviously on strictly Republican Democratic lines. To your point, if it's 67% of Americans think there is some issue with democracy being a peril, that's a lot of Republicans as well also believe that. Aaron, on a come back to you because I, I, I know you're looking at the clock here. Could you give us, let's say, the top three planks of or what the Democrats are actually going to the American people in the third of the Senate seats and all these congressional seats, this midterms? What other than abortion, because we, we, we kind of dealt with that, and abortion access, what are the three planks which the Democrats are putting in front of the American people?
7: So, I mean, as you said, the first one is definitely abortion. And this concept of Wade, harkening back to the Roe v Wade decision is definitely top of the list in most places. But, you know, in the midterm elections, they tend to be much more localized just because there's no presidential election that's going on. So it really depends. I mean, we just saw a House seat in Alaska turn, not in small part due to a fight over fisheries. And this is the tendency with midterm elections is that there's a lot of focus on these local issues. So there's a lot of parts of the country that are dealing with flooding and fires, and so homeowners insurance might be a really big issue. Or car insurance in, in Michigan, for some reason or another, car insurance is very expensive. So there's going to be a lot of pocketbook issues like that that are going to be focused on, and in very different ways depending on where people are in the country. The Democrats will broadly point to falling gasoline prices after the global shock to the oil markets was felt due to the you know the war in Ukraine. The Prices have dropped almost $2 since they peaked a few months ago. And there's other very positive economic indicators that Democrats are going to point to. In addition to the claim that a big chunk of inflation is actually price gouging by greedy corporations. So there's definitely an economic plank that's very important, particularly for young voters. In addition to the reproductive freedom angle, they're going to be talking about student loan debt cancellation, which really impacts people up into their 40s in the U.S. because there's just so much student debt and it's at such high interest rates in the U.S. that that $10,000 of canceled student debt or even up to 20,000 is something they'll definitely point to as a promise made and promise kept. And you'll also see climate action be something that's focused on in certain areas because there was a, about, I think it was $400 billion worth of climate action that was in the probably poorly named Inflation Reduction Act. So I would say those are definitely core messages. There's also going to be some some pushing of public safety. Crime has gone up somewhat since the pandemic started, and there's definitely concerns that Democrats are trying to address in ways that offer you know the Democratic version of how to address public safety, as opposed to Republicans who are seeing it as one of the best things that they can run on. So I would say those are most of the issues that are going to, to turn the election. But again, like I said before, because the races are just much more localized during the midterms, there's going to be some very, very local issues that decide a lot of the races that are
0: up. So if I could jump in for just a second, just to kind of add, I, I think the major strategy the Democrats want to go towards is don't make the election about them. Make the election a choice between them and the MAGA wing of the Republican party. And, you know, people like Kerry Lake in, in Arizona you know you got a kind of a lot of candidates in pennsylvania where you can you can do this
5: thank you for that brent williams who's joined us up on stage for everybody who's listening to this at home this is a recording of the podcast mid-atlantic on the platform called clubhouse if you would like to maybe be in on one of the recordings of this podcast why don't you go to an app store of your choice and find the clubhouse app download that and then find mid-atlantic and then that means that you'll you'll be alerted whenever we go live in one of these rooms and you can be in the audience and you can raise your hand up and then join us so we're joined on stage by marshall ranking marshall you are an, an avowed republican give us a sense of how the republican party's members are maybe feeling coming up to the midterms traditionally As I said earlier, the midterms deliver a kicking to the president's party. But Democrats are feeling somewhat bullish. How are Republicans feeling?
1: Well, I think some people are feeling over-enthusiastic. There is a sense among Trump, some Trump voters that they're going to have a big lead. I find their enthusiasm to be mostly about what they've seen on TV, not about the numbers they've captured. I think Democrats have a reason to be bullish. I still think you're looking at a house that's, you know, plus three or plus five. So there's not, it's within the margin of error and there aren't any coattails. And then I think that the enthusiasm for the Senate that the Republicans may gain the Senate is ill-placed. I don't see the GOP having enough momentum to get the Senate. And I think there will probably be some October surprise that will make that more convincing. I just don't know what it'll be. But the GOP is on the back foot right now. There's a question
5: to whoever feels qualified to answer this. One of the things which Mitch McConnell uh, has commented on is the quality of candidates that the Republicans have actually fielded. We have Mehmet Oz in Pennsylvania who is somewhat of a celebrity, but a controversial uh, potential senator. And and he looks like a saint compared to somebody like Herschel Walker in, in Georgia. Why is it that the Republicans have so many, let's say, questionable candidates in this election?
2: It's a couple things. First off, the candidates that are winning in the primaries are, one, adherence to Primarily adherence to that authoritative, theocratic dictatorship concept. And so to that point, you're not getting the best or the most qualified or the most appealable to potentially Democratic voters or independent voters. I mean, I used to vote sometimes for Republicans. I voted for Rick Snyder for governor here in Michigan. There's not that type of candidate that is on the ballot in most of these states. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that the money splits have been favorable for Democratic PACs and Democratic Central Committee organizations at the congressional level, House and Senate whereas the Republicans have had a combination of some struggles as well as mismanagement potentially of dollars. I think there's a, for some of the corporate sector, there's kind of a feeling of, if you're going to go after places like Disney, Amazon and other places, maybe we'll spend, but not as much as we used to. And then others that are doubling down in the pro-democracy camp. And then lastly, I believe the other thing that's going to factor in, and to Marshall's point, we're looking, and I believe, and I tell everybody look at the 1934 midterm election. So many of the conditions on the ground are similar to that midterm. That's where Democrats gained nine and nine in the House and Senate. Not to say that that will fully be the case, but so many of the conditions are similar. Democratic voters then did not bleed over and decide to split in vote for Republicans, and they voted at a consistency rate consistent with what they had done in nineteen thirty two and nineteen thirty so the the dynamics looked like democratic votes will be equal to or greater than as they were in twenty eighteen than Republican votes. So the split will come down to where, with those Senate candidates especially, do people, when they get the chance to split their ballot in November, how many may split for a down-ballot Republican House candidate, but pick that Democratic candidate for Senate? And that's a factor that's going to be really one to watch in a lot of these.
0: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend.
4: Yeah, I was just going to say, I feel pretty optimistic about this race in Georgia, simply because it's very rare that Democrats have that sort of moral high ground with the more religious voting demographics, which is obviously very large in Georgia. I think that it will the, the perceived issues with Herschel Walker's personal life will ultimately do him in, not to mention there's still quite a bit of white racism in Georgia, and and he is a black man. So there's a number of factors really working against him that normally a Republican would have, have an easier time with. And you add in, of course, the Roe v. Wade decision being overturned. That's I, I think that that all looks very favorable for the Democrats in Georgia.
5: One of the things which has really been marked for me in the run-up to, to the midterms is that uh, legislatively, the Democrats have been very disciplined. Whether it's the progressive wing and they say the more centrist wing, basically voted in lockstep, and you've had the good senator, Democratic senator, even from from West Virginia, who has fundamentally got behind by Biden's agenda. Steve, I, I, Steve Appel, I know you are a registered Republican. Is it right for let's say for Democrats to characterise? The Republicans have been ideologically split. We've talked about this earlier in the show, but I want to hear a Republican's view on it, that there are these MAGA voting Republicans who are in the thrall to Trump. And then there are more traditional Republicans. And really what we're seeing here with a lot of these candidates, Republican candidates, is the play out of this split within the Republican Party. So. From a from Republican voter's perspective, how do you see the, the Republican coalition? Is it a case of this divide means that you, you are electorally weaker?
3: What a great question. Thank you so much. And And I've been spending the past couple of minutes trying to wrap my head around, quote, theocratic dictatorship, close quote, I had never heard that term before. I, w- I was looking it up on Google. But I th- think... You know what?
5: To that point, Steve, there has been a lot of talk recently about conservative religious nationalism and the fact that whether it's Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene, but there are some elements of the Republican Party who fundamentally do put religion above one of the tenets of the Constitution, you know, which is that there is a clear distinction between church and state. So it's not just a, a uh,
3: Yeah, a and, and d- I feel, with all due respect, Democrats do the same thing when it comes to free speech.
5: You know what? I asked you the question. I'm not going to jump in anymore. But no uh,
3: problem. Steve, Steve, <laughs>
5: Steve t- t- explain to us... I, I'd um, be happy.
3: I, I'd be happy ...the too. divide I, I, in the
5: Republican Party. Go.
3: I think, with all due respect, that both the Democratic Party as well as the Republican Party have become more polarized since the Trump presidency. I think since the past seven years, six years, 2016, that there have the Democrats, a faction of the party has gone further left. And the Republicans have gone further to the right. I know that the MAGA party, the MAGA faction of the Republican Party, which, by the way, I can't stand. They make me sick. It seems like they have replaced the Tea Party from 20 years ago, which also made me sick. I consider myself a moderate. A shameless plug. That's why I hold the show on Saturdays, Middle of the Road and i think that we need to bring more people to the center because 5% generally speaking wins any election you're not trying to convince people to the far left to come to the right you're not trying to convince far people people on the far right to come to the left you're trying to inch people closer to the center so you reach that one to five percent, which decides every election. And Royfield, if you want. And by the way, please forgive me. You can call bullshit that I did not answer your question. Thank you.
8: I'd like to, uh, if it's all right, contend with Steve's point when appropriate. <laughs> all
5: right. Here we're just going to just uh, if, you, if people just want to answer questions from here on in, just, just, just unmute. And kind of go for it. One of the races is most obviously going to be down in Florida, where GOP Governor Ron DeSantis is seeking a decisive 2022 victory. Will this be a springboard? for a national campaign.
3: And you did, uh, sorry to interrupt, I got I got to ask, you did hear what DeSantis did with the illegal, or pardon me, the immigrants, the 50 immigrants in Martha's Vineyards within the past 24 hours, right? I,
5: I, I did not. Uh,
3: Ron DeSantis, without notice to Massachusetts and Martha's Vineyard, sent at presumably Florida's own expense, 50 immigrants over to Martha's Vineyard. You can just Google up DeSantis immigrants Martha's Vineyard he he flew them over and Martha's Vineyard I believe is one of the sanctuary states of course I'm born raised continue to live in in California and Gavin Newsom Gavin Newsom is specifically said the California Los Angeles sanctuary state where Martha's Vineyard was considered a sanctuary state now all of a sudden you got 50 new immigrants there that were flown there without notice by DeSantis and there apparently is a lot of complaining about the people that live there. But but sorry, I, I digress. But you mentioned DeSantis. I had to mention
8: Martha's Vineyard. Sorry. It's interesting that that actually we've seen this before. We should remember Belarus actually pushed a number of immigrants onto Poland in similar fashion, although it was more like a thousand. I think Roegfeld made it correctly at that point last November. I want to say interesting trend.
3: I was just going to say really quickly, where all the population a year ago was very happy with Martha's Vineyard being a sanctuary state for immigrants, now all of a sudden 50 of them get dumped by the governor of Florida. They're not as happy as they used to be, but sorry.
2: So actually, Steve, though, there's a few things that are going on with that. First off, the folks in Martha's Vineyard are rallying to get housing for the individuals, to get clothes, they Try to situate them as best as possible because the folks were shipped without any sort of even notice of where they were going. They were, as the people are telling them, what the Florida officials told them before getting on the plane. Oh, we're sending you somewhere with jobs or the like.
3: Yeah, and, and that's a whole other issue. That, with all their, That's the fraud issue. That, that's the issue, which, by the way, I live in California. My governor, Gavin Newsom, just apparently came out and said he he wants DeSantis to be accused of kidnapping based on fraud. But Governor Gavin Newsom, he likes to advertise in Florida. Go ahead.
2: Right, but so, so here's the thing, and I think this gets to where we have this split that is not healable. And I'll just put it out there. I don't think this split is healable in America. So one, as a Christian, as a democratic Christian voter, And 61 percent of Biden voters are Christian. So that's 50 million of us who are Christian. But we don't practice our Christianity the way that a DeSantis and Abbott and Ducey and others practice their Christianity, which is with an unfettered cruelty, Uh, unfettered. We're going to show you that if you do things different than us, if you think different than us, if you operate different than us, we're going to punish you. This action is the quote-unquote I'm gonna punish Massachusetts because Massachusetts does not see people who are refugees, asylum seekers, who are fleeing horrible conditions of countries that the U.S. broke in our foreign policy in the 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s as something to demonize. Now, what has happened in these particular states that are getting the populations? They are trying to find housing. They're trying to find clothing. They're trying to work them through the system. But we do have a system for asylum processing, for refugee processing. We have a system. It's not, the, it's not perfect. But we do have a system, and what DeSantis and the others are doing is that if you don't do it my way, I'm going to punish you. That's where I use the phraseology of this theocratic dictatorship because I also add in Jackson, Mississippi. Now, the city of Jackson is votes primarily Democratic. The county and the neighboring cities are majority Republican. As Mississippi has gotten in dollars from the federal government over the past 20 years under Republican control at the state level and at the county level, Jackson has disproportionately gotten a smaller share to address things relating to their infrastructure than their Republican voting neighbor communities. That's not, you are my brother or my sister who lives in the same state as me, that's I'm punishing you because you vote different than me. And the only way you'll get equalization and resources is if you join my way of thinking, my way of voting, that's not a democracy. That's not a constitutional republic where you can have differences, but I'm not going to punish you. Our side does not punish. We don't do that. That side does, and that's not the real Republican side because I'm a fan of a Jack Kemp, a Bob Dole, a John McCain, a Rick Snyder here in Michigan, a John Engler in Michigan. Well, the first three people you mentioned
3: are dead or they're never running again, but I do agree.
2: They were were good people.
3: Uh, Absolutely, sir. I agree with 90 to 95% of what you said, and uh, although you didn't come out and say it, It sounds like you kind of agree with me that 5%, you sway the people. Either way, it's going to win the election. You you talked about 60%. Most elections are like 60-40 or closer to 60, pardon me, 55-45. That's within that 5% swing. And I agree with you that the country's becoming more polarized. You've got the ultra-right, I can't stand, the ultra-left, I can't stand. Agree with me or else blah, blah, blah. The fact of the matter is 5%, the middle, is what sways most elections. But, but I'm sorry but, but to he, interrupt you, sir.
5: But he, uh, here's the thing, though. One second there, Aaron, because I, I want to bring the conversation on to – to Donald Trump and we have touched on him earlier on but to your point though Steve and then I'm gonna build the question
3: yeah look at that election what, it was won by two to three percent but go ahead no but but but,
5: but no but here's the thing though here's the thing right that what Trump did in 2016 was actually not to talk to the middle actually what Trump did was he pivoted to the right and and, and what he had over Hillary Clinton, even though he got less votes, was greater enthusiasm. And, and the politics of Trumpism, regardless of actually what the specific policies actually are, are to do with getting a base fired up, utterly fired up, and winning the battle for enthusiasm. It just so happens now that one of the reasons why, potentially why the Democrats are going to beat the Republicans, or at least they're going to outperform what parties traditionally do in the midterms, is because there is another issue which is emblematic to the left, access to abortion, which is going to fire up a democratic base, and arguably, depending on which opinion polls you look at, more moderate-minded Americans who think that the banning of abortion access on a national basis is actually pretty extremism, pretty extreme. So, and, and then here's the question, right? How, how many percentage points do we believe that Donald Trump is gifting The Democrats nationally, and I appreciate all these races are local, nationally because of his... I'm going to forget January 6th. Just put that to one side. The fact that he has taken classified documents and is engaged in at least a campaign of obfuscation around that, it does not look good. Anybody feel free just just to weigh in. How many percentage points do you believe this is gifting the Democratic Party, Aaron Berger?
8: Well, the thing is, the thing is this: I think I think that it is enough, but then also it is not the only trend by far, right? Keep in mind, you know, we had Republicans died asymmetrically v, you know, versus Democrats of COVID, right? Three to one by you know the general margins. So right now, if we look at 2020, right. Georgia was won by Biden by about I don't know how many votes did Trump ask for? Eleven thousand something, right? Whatever. Okay. Let's just round up to twelve thousand. And so right now you have thirty eight thousand deaths from COVID right now. Right? Just by math alone, as we could see that by 2020 margins, Democrats have effectively doubled their margin based on that alone, right? Steve made an interesting point earlier, very true, that you know it doesn't take much to sort of sway elections, right? Because largely a lot of them can be swayed on these individual levels, right? And so that only comes up to like a very small percentage. So you had similar numbers as well out of Arizona, right? Now you also correctly referenced the, the Supreme Court decision, okay? Something to consider as well. I was recently reading that if you take the second half of 2021 and the first half of 2022, sorry for folks who've already heard me say this, right, and you look at online donations to, what is it, WinRed, right, which is like the general kind of, you know, Republican Party online donation platform. They had, at the beginning of the first half of 2021, they had about, what was it, something like 900,000 or something online donors at that point, right? Through to now, right, they have lost 43,000 donors, online donors, right? Meanwhile, with the Democrats, at the same time, they started with 1.9 million online donors, and through to the second half of 2022, right? They have gotten now 2.5 million online donors. That is up until June. That is not including the fervor that has since been discovered, you know, once the Supreme Court took away the rights of half the country. So we can see that there are a number of headwinds, right? gerrymandering didn't turn out to be as bad as we thought it was there's a decent degree of republican infighting right democrats have a lot of a a number of headwinds actually going for them biden recently coming out with you know it looks like the railroad strike has been averted awesome right there's there's a lot here going on i think that'll translate if i could
0: jump in so what i think trump did was that he got a lot of people using cultural symbols, symbols, and you can kind of think of it like a football team, that aren't normal voters to come out and vote because he sold a story, you know, partially based on race, partially based on elitism, that got a lot of people that didn't pay attention to come out and vote when they don't normally vote. The question kind of for that strategy is is do those people come out when when trump's not on the ballot which you won't be this coming up election and do those people come out routinely and vote over and over again again you know what the republican party has lost is your college educated voters and i I hate to say it if you got to trade a non-college educated voter for a college-educated voter, you should take the college-educated voter because that voter is going to be out in every midterm, or more, much more likely to be out in every midterm, et cetera. So, you know, as we go into this midterm, I guess my question for the Republican strategy is, does the turnout, you know, do all those people that Trump got off the sideline for various culture reasons turn out when they've been told over and over that the election was stolen and, and, you know, they're going to, I mean, an easy place to ration from that or or use your rational mind to go from that. If the election was stolen and you don't pay much attention, why would you come out and vote in the midterm? We have
1: Uh, a lot of new voters here in the Valley and we're, I mean, unlike other places, we're going to see a headwind because of the immigration bump. In between January and now, from the Del Rio sector to Brownsville, we have captured a grand total of two million people. It's one of the highest capture counts on record. So that's taking people that were activated, that were Trump voters, and keeping them involved in the process. They're going, federal government's not helping us out. They're not enforcing the law. Two million people, that's a lot of people. And so that typically helps them Stay involved, not to mention the local stuff that we do for local candidates and then like law enforcement appreciation or any sort of other community event, which really helps tie those new voters back into the existing organization.
5: Um, Let's say that 538 and fundamentally the pollsters are correct. The Democrats hold the Senate and marginally lose the House. What does this do for, for Trumpism, bearing in mind that we're two years away from another election? Anybody feel free to, to jump in and answer that question. Go for it.
4: Yeah, what happens to Trumpism post-midterms, right? So in the scenario that you outlined, the the what's considered the likeliest scenario, Dems keep the Senate, Republicans gain the House. What then happens to Trumpism? I, I don't think the election results are going to Affect Trumpism that much, although, you know, failing to win both houses will be a slight blow to Trumpism, especially if his candidates, people like Herschel Walker, fail in, in the general elections. But what will be, I think, very consequential to Trumpism is the outcome of these various proceedings that are happening against him. And I'm very, very interested to see what the timing of any indictments looks like. You know, we've heard from Merrick Garland, I believe, or at least the Department of Justice, that no indictments are going to happen prior to the midterms, which is, I think, not only a tasteful thing to do in some regards, but I think it's a strategically smart thing to do, so it's not to energize Republicans prior to the midterm. But doing it potentially in that, say, first three to six months After the midterms, which will allow any sort of fury that then ensues within the Republican base to die out over time before a 2024 election. I I think if we're thinking about the future of Trumpism, it's really important to think about, you know, these indictments that could potentially be coming down the pike, both at the federal and state level and how they are rolled out and when, that's what I'm looking at in terms of seeing like, the, the future of Trumpism. Well. So
5: there you go, there you had it. Some of some eminent thinkers, so we'd like to thank specifically Eric Foster and Aaron Fisher, who really helped us out at the, the start of this show, looking at the reasons why the Democratic Party is quietly confident that it will, will not take the shellacking that all the polls said it, it was going to take back in March for the, for these midterms very obviously there has been roe versus wade has been overturned and president biden has had quite a few legislative wins and his approval rating as the day that we record this which is a thursday the 15th of september is now 45 percent from just a historic low back in march so so thank you to those two gentlemen but also to brent aaron berger Rick Sanchez, Brent Williams, Steve Appel, Marshall Ranking, and to Stan Binning, also weighing in and joining us on this recording of the podcast, Mid-Atlantic. Again, I say this kind of most times when I do these shows. I record these on the on the platform called Clubhouse. So Why don't you, if you're listening to this at home and there's a good 5,000 of you that download every one of these podcasts each each time they go out, download Clubhouse to your smartphone and you could be in the audience and possibly you could come up on stage and ask a question so it's the you coming to the podcast if you've got an email if you would like to email me you can email me where i'm royfield at gmail.com that's r-o-i-f-i-e-l-d and possibly you can say what future topics you would like us to look at here on mid-atlantic also good listener could i implore upon you to go and write us a nice review a good five-star review and Apple iTunes and if you are in this audience today maybe spread a little bit of sugar my way by going on to Apple Apple, Apple iTunes and writing the podcast a five-star review if you are in the audience and it's your first time in, in a mid-Atlantic room hit the little green house over in the top left and then you'll be alerted as to when we go live with these rooms generally generally we do one fortnightly I am English so I'm going to call it a fortnight not bi-weekly because uh, bi-weekly, just lazy English, fortnight is much more, much more resonant with the English language. So we do these at, approximately once every 14 days. Though you're in for a treat because tomorrow we're going to do another room which is on the future of the monarchy. Very obviously, Queen Elizabeth uh, has passed away, but she was also the Queen of Canada and Jamaica. So we were speaking to a Canadian journalist and a Jamaican journalist about what it actually means for those countries that their queen has died and they now have a new king. So there you go. That's been me, Roy Phil Brown. Don't forget, I say this every every podcast, left of centre politics is right-thinking politics, but we don't demonise our right-leaning brothers and sisters. We try and win them over with the strength of our argument because at the heart of every functioning, democracy is a common space. We can agree and we can agree to disagree, but we do it in a way which is constructive.